if you have self-confidence, then you have confidence to open your hand and make peace. In fact, the word karate, what it means, te means hand. And kara is open in Japanese. So karate means the open hand. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community as a whole. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Jeff and member Danny Hakim a philanthropist, athlete, and educator. And Danny is the founder of Buddha for Peace, now called One Team Sports for Social Change. And he recently launched the Sports for Social Change Coalition, a growing movement of Sports for Peace stakeholders in Israel. The chairman of the Israel Lifesaving Federation, Danny is also a board member of MWU, Maccabi World Union, OLMEP, the Alliance for Middle East Peace, the Azrieli Foundation, Kids Kicking Cancer and Psych Theater. A two-time World Karate Silver Medalist, he holds a seventh-degree black belt from Japan. In 2017, Danny was inducted to the Australian Maccabi Hall of Fame, and in 2019, he was the recipient of the Bonetion Award for Culture, Art, and Sport. Danny and I actually spoke twice for this podcast, first in August and then again in December. In our conversations, we talked about what's happening with the Sports for Social Change Coalition, the unique role that sports can play in bringing people together, and the urgency of this work in the aftermath of last May's civil unrest in Israel. Take a listen. Hi, Danny. Great to have you here. Andres, great to see you. Even though it's in Zoom. <laughs> Signs of the time. Tell me a little bit about yourself. You're uh, originally from? Originally from Australia. <laughs> oh, well, now it's perfect. What can we do? Actually, my parents are from Egypt. Both parents. Wow. Uh, I'm born in Australia. At least my... you have the right seasons there. Like summer is in <laughs> December, January, February. Like it should be, not like yeah. here. Yeah, so when I had my bar mitzvah, my um, grandmother gave me a one-year subscription to karate lessons. She thought it would be very good. It would come in handy. You never know. So I went to karate, and then I was good, and then I ended up representing Australia for many years at World Championships, won a couple of silver medals at a World Championship, and then I ended up moving to Japan where I was learning more. I was there for... Well, quite a few years, nearly a decade, and then moved to Israel with this idea of how martial arts or sports can bring people together. Here we have an Egyptian Jew born in Australia, yeah. living in Japan. Like that's quite an identity journey, isn't it? Like how, how was that experience? Well, really, I, I feel I have three identities. Right. The Australia, the Japanese, and also the Jewish Israeli. Was there a communal life? Was there a Jewish life in Japan that you could do or it was just in your heart? No, no. There was a Jewish community center. I would go there on Shabbat and so I meet uh, many other Jews that uh, came from all over the world. The actual community 
started from the Jews that were in Shanghai. Oh, you interesting. Know, the ones that have been in Shanghai and they moved over to Japan. Yeah. And your family ended up in Australia after World War II or? No, 1956. That's oh, when, when most were, of the Egyptian Jews, the Sinai Nasser, campaign, yeah. they were kicked out. Yeah, I know. They were kicked out. And, and Hakim means doctor. You, you must have doctors in your family, right? In your family. Well, the story, tree. the legend goes that before uh, Egypt, my grandfather was actually born in Sfat. And we were six generations in Sfat. My great-grandfather was the chief rabbi of Sfat and his father as well. But before that, it was in Izmir in Turkey. And oh. they were given the title Hakim because he was the right-hand man of the Sultan of Turkey. I don't know if if that's just legend, but uh, but that's the name yeah. Hakim. So every time I come to Israel, they go Hakim. You know, they look at me very carefully. Security. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so from Japan to Israel, what brought you to Israel eventually? Well, I actually I didn't go to a Jewish school, but I went to the Beitar Youth Movement, the Zionist Youth Movement. The Jabotinsky yeah. was my mentor and i had a japanese mentor which was my instructor uh, his name was kanazawa and uh, he taught elvis presley how to do the wiggles <laughs> in the 1950s <laughs> that's his claim to fame but uh yeah uh jabotinsky i grew up thinking that this is the place for jews to live and it was in the back of my mind and after uh, living in japan i you know and i was training with uh you know, Lebanese and Iranians. And I thought, you know, we have such a, a common uh, love of the sport that maybe I can use this concept and help in Israel with uh, social change. You know, sports bringing together very different people. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Well, it started when I was on the Australian team. There was, you know, Lebanese Australians, uh, Armenian Australians, and I was the token Jew. In this <laughs> it wasn't a very Jewish sport at the time, but you know, I became very good friends with the, the Turkish Australians and we were proud to represent Australia, but also represent our communities. And then when I went to Japan, I was training with Lebanese from Lebanon and Iranians from Iran. And again, because we were not Japanese, we had a lot in common <laughs> because right. we weren't Japanese. And that brought us closer. And also with the martial arts, You know, intrinsic values of respect and self-control and harmony within yourself and so you can have harmony with others was the say jumping block for me to do something and i remember i don't know it was 10 years ago that we first met and you talked to me about buddha for peace first of all what was it and how it came about okay so um, i started it, it was 18 years ago Um, Budo actually means, it's Japanese, it means martial arts for peace. So it also means a way of preventing conflict. You uh, look at it carefully in the Chinese character. So I thought using this um, methodology and also being a third culture, I think that's very important, where you have Arabs and Jews, you know, learning Japanese martial arts, where the You know, they bow, they meditate, they wear the same clothes, um, they're doing the same movements. It's a common denominator where they're doing the same thing. And it's not the American culture uh, and it's not the European culture. It's something exotic. It's Jackie Chan. 
and neutral because the Americans are perceived to be, you know, pro-Israeli and exactly. And the Europeans have a history of uh, colonialism and whatever. So it was a very neutral uh, culture and sport. So you went from being a Jabotinskyite. (laughs) The Jabotinsky is about you know, liberal Democrat, but he was also about strengths and conquest and to be a peacenik. Well, he, he wasn't about conquest. He was about the Jewish people have to be strong. And that right. was one of the reasons I did karate. Right. You know, it made sense. You've got to defend yourself. And yeah. as a strong people, then you're open uh, for peace. And Jabotinsky did say that we should be uh, considering the Arab population. Right. He, he actually, in his writing, he he suggests that the Jewish state should have an Arab, an Arab vice president, a Jewish president, an Arab vice president. Right. So, yeah, I, I you know, I was eight years old when I started. Jabotinsky. <laughs> it's very deep, you know. And- I remember epic fights between Beitar and Ashomer Atzair in Buenos Aires, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> yes, an abonim in the middle. An abonim in the middle. But, yeah. but it's interesting. So there is a metaphor there, which is Jabotinskyite in a way. Like, mm. we are a strong country now. We are a strong nation. And that probably make us feel safe and sort of comfortable within our own skin to go and relate to others in a deeper way. And it's kind of what you're trying to do with, with Buddha, right? Yeah. Well, look, if you have self-confidence then you have confidence to open your hand and make peace. In fact, the word karate, what it means, do you eat sushi? Yes. You know what temaki is? The hand it's, roll. Oh, the hand roll. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So te means hand. Okay. And kara is open in Japanese. So karate means the open hand because they're, they're open hand techniques. And, uh, and that's the idea is that you have to have an open mind uh, before every fight or before every interaction. And, uh, and that was drilled in me also as I was growing up and living in Japan. Open hand, open mind, open heart. Yeah. And that's, uh, and that's what we're trying to do. So tell me some anecdotes and the stories that you brought from this, from this work at Buddha. When I came to Israel, I had very little Hebrew. And the idea was to try and find martial arts instructors who would accept and agree with this idea. So I went looking for an Israeli Arab instructor, a Palestinian instructor, and a Jewish instructor. And we would start with these three clubs. And I found the Arab uh, Israeli instructor. He's been with me from the beginning. He's a Bedouin in an unrecognized village named Hazem. And uh, it's amazing. Uh, I have, you know, he has over a thousand students and he teaches all over the Negev. And, um, you know, we've been to uh, championships together in other countries. That's Hazem. And I had a Palestinian from East Jerusalem as well. Uh, they also believed in the philosophy of um, using martial arts as a conduit for bringing the kids together. And I also have, of course, Jewish and uh, also Haredi instructors now. Wow. So it's not just uh, Jews and Arabs. We have a group of um, 500 kids that are doing capoeira. So it's not even Japanese now. It's we Brazilian. Extended, yeah, we extended into not just Japanese martial arts, and we had Korean, then we had uh, Brazilian. So all, again, a different culture, bringing people together, and now we have this wonderful Haredi group.
with the mind of um of a philanthropist now yes like how do you measure success because like ultimately you're not only aiming to have hundreds of kids doing martial arts I mean that's of course interesting but that's not the ultimate outcome that you're seeking right so how do you how do you establish goals and how do you go about measuring them yeah that's a really good point you know we have evaluation a lot of it it's more qualitative than quantitative right. yeah and, and subjective too you you can't really yeah you can't but yeah. but I can tell you that like um, doing it now said 18 years where I see some you know some of the kids were eight years old when they started okay they're now in their late 20s some of them are mothers some of them right. are bringing their kids to come along did you see the documentary Shadia yes okay so that was one of my instructors and You know she's an Israeli Arab girl she won a world championship and now she's 34 years old mother of single mother of two and um, I'm doing a second documentary with her now um, but you you all you can do is listen to how it impacted their lives and like I said with Timna Nelson Levy I didn't know that she was in a Buddha for peace activities and when she was interviewed she started talking about it How that activity opened her mind to training with Arabs and and things like this so the impact it's it is very hard to know yeah. and now with my work of creating a coalition one of the main things is to find out collective impact yeah so so yeah. let's talk about the coalition for a minute because you know Jeff and we're all about coalitions on of funders coalitions between funders and and nonprofits and and actually using the power of the collective to produce change so you created this coalition it's it's fairly recent isn't it it's still being created it's a right. whole process yes yeah. but uh, too many organizations are working in isolation from one another right and they're doing the same thing the goal of the uh, basketball for peace or tennis for peace or Buddha for peace is the same goals. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's a team sport or an individual sport. Um, how we assess the impact in different ways, uh, that's what we're looking at now. So the idea of creating a coalition is to help these organizations build capacity right. so they can scale up their activities and scale up the impact. So collective impact uh, is what we're studying now. It's no. sort of lifting the tide to lift all boats in the field of sports and social change. Correct. I don't know if you know, there is a, in 2011, the Stanford Social Innovation Review introduced the concept of collective impact. We've heard of it. Good. Okay. <laughs> so you know that, uh, you know, it's an effective form of cross-cultural collaboration. It's really yeah. interesting, sorry. I just can't can't help thinking how how you're mixing tools here in a great way, right? Tools from the Asian culture, martial arts, uh, you know, philosophies from their um, modern American techniques like collective impact and and the Jewish, you know Middle Eastern. It's really interesting how it all comes together in this. My experience of Buddha for peace. really was collective impact because when you talk about you know there's many different styles of karate right. and a lot of them don't get on they have their egos then there's different there's karate and judo and taekwondo and all the different forms as well and the different countries so bringing those together 
even though you call it martial arts, but it was collecting different organizations and putting them together for collective impact. Can you give us a couple of examples of how that examples that really use sport and breach social gaps? So, so um, in building this coalition, we started with like 30 organizations that were interested to be part of a coalition. And we decided to have just 10 to leave mm -hmm. the agenda. And out of the 10, half of them have the mandate for peace and the other half don't. I didn't want them all to be for peace. We have organizations that are doing for kids at risk. We have um, special needs. And the idea is that some of those organizations are doing by default because they have 50% of the kids are Arab or, mm -hmm. you know, already. So bringing them together, you know, if it's surfing or if it's soccer, right. building a young leadership of those that respect each other. It really uh, is happening now. Why now to form a coalition? Why hasn't it been done before? You know, in other countries, there are many sports coalitions. So, and I think because of COVID, what's happened, many organizations stopped their activities because it was contact, it was team sports. Right. They needed to adapt. So we're all talking to each other. How are you adapting? It was like a group therapy. And most important was what happened in May with the social and regional unrest. That right. put everything on the forefront for... Uh, that's that we're, we're referring to the rioting in mixed cities, you know, between Arab and Jews that lasted for a few days. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There was a big trauma for many people working on coexistence. Yeah. Yeah, and many of these sports or peace organizations were working in Ramla and Lod and Akko and and that's why we got together and said, you know, how can we really work yeah. together One, one of the big frustrations I had in May is that the media was reporting very extensively and very graphically on the rioting and the injured and the looting, but they were not reporting on efforts like yours. And this is actually what made me want to talk to you because, you know, yes, that happened. What happened in May was terrible and did happen. But what we don't know is that simultaneously there were many, many examples like the coalition that emerged out of the May thing and were working throughout the crisis and it's sort of the other side of a coin. Well, you know, I, just a year before, in April 2019, I did the, the International Day of Peace and Sport in Ramla. And yeah. it was 400 kids, 10 different organizations. We all met there. We all did the sports together. Then we all met in the Israeli Mall. And we had a Haredi uh, hip-hop instructor And everybody was hip-hopping together. And this was a year before the riot. So there are a lot of things. And, and creating this coalition is how can we as a force together go to those mixed cities and say, all right, you know, we have 10 different sports. We're willing to introduce these models and in a larger scale, not just individual scale. Right. And with the proper funding and support by the municipalities, we can make the difference. Right. And a lot of these organizations have been going for over 20 years. Tell me about the funders in the in the coalition, because there's there's two coalitions, really. There's the coalition of the nonprofits, and then there's a coalition among the funders, correct? Correct. That's we're building two communities, two ecosystems. One is the nonprofits from the right field and the other are the funders so also a 
two and a half years ago, I brought together with JFN those funders who are already funding sports for peace organizations, right. basketball and soccer. And we all got together. I can tell you, initially, uh, we thought we'd have like six or seven. We had 22 funders that came. Very and interesting. Very interesting. And we're going to bring them again together after we've mapped out the environment. Because you may have funders that come from two perspectives. You may have funders that say, I care about sports. But then you have you may have funders that say, listen, sports for me is secondary. I care about sports because sports is a good tool to lift people up from poverty, from you know marginalization and, and what have you. So in fact, there's a Venn diagram there, isn't it? Yes. It's like oh, yeah. we, we see it a lot with the arts as well. We we do have a group of funders that are working in Israel in the sphere of arts for social change. And it's kind of the same. Some are like art people and some say, well, listen, I'm agnostic about what we use, but art works. And the same here, sports work. It is hard to evaluate it, but it does work and it's very scalable. Right. It's also important. And also the sport has rules. You follow these right. rules. It provides you with a framework, like the rules protect you in a way, you know, like regulate conflict as it were. Yes, it's a structured way. I think it would have been sad to see, for example, these cases of, of these Iranians. I mean, I think he was a wrestler who yes. like, didn't want to fight Israel, didn't want to play with Israel and got suspended. Probably wasn't his choice at all. Probably was forced to do that. And, sure. and you see how yeah. in that example, you see sports manipulated to generate conflict. And what you try to do is exactly the opposite. Right. And you can so, see now with the Abrahamic Accords, we had the Israeli rugby team that went to the Emirates. For the is, first there an Israel, is there an Israeli rugby team? I didn't know. You wouldn't believe they are, and they're pretty good. And like little are, Jews and, playing rugby? Like, come on. <laughs> you know, last, uh, in March, they organized for the uh, Arab Emirate women's rugby team to come to Israel. And, is there a women's and, rugby team? Oh, my God, I had no idea. Yeah, and we were going to be helping this happen, but because of COVID, it didn't happen. What's the weirdest sport that there is in Israel that you didn't know existed? The weirdest sport? <laughs> They're coming out of the woodwork. There's a skateboarding. You know, in, in Jerusalem, there is a women skateboarding a group for wow. Haredi girls and Palestinian girls. They're wonderful. Yeah. And they're off the streets and they're skateboarding. I guess that what we don't have is we don't have the winter sports, do we? Well, there is one uh, ice hockey team in the north. That's about it. Yeah, I know. I know that because of Canada. You know, Canada created, you know, in a center in Kiryat Shmona to do ice hockey thing. Yeah. That's what exactly. I guess we don't have is curling, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about COVID. It must have been a big blow for the sports community, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, we, we, we're in a number of schools. We were supposed to, we had a contract with Baraka School right. to right. open up in uh, 15 different schools. And we were waiting and waiting. And because it's a contact sport and because the schools didn't open, we didn't have any activities except for one uh, dormitory. And that's same with all the other sports. Yeah. And did you manage to somehow 
keep the flame going during the worst of the pandemic? Uh, yes, um, we were doing Zoom calls. In, yeah. Initially, we were doing Zoom training where, right. you know, you see the kids doing the kicks and the push-ups and things like that, but that can't last. Right. It lasted it's, for a few for months. A yeah. But I also... Uh, segued into another organization, which I started called the Israel Lifesaving Federation. Do you know about that? No, not at all. Lifesaving, yeah. So but we brought it from Australia. I don't know if you know, but in Australia, there are 60,000 kids a year that learn to volunteer to do lifesaving. It's an yeah. educational program that's been going for 100 years. When you're, when you're an island, you may need that. That's right. But in yeah. Israel, there's been high rates of drownings. Yes. Because, you know, Bedouins don't know how to swim. The Russians, uh, the Ethiopians, a lot of uh, people don't know how to swim. But even if you know how to swim, you don't know how to read the dangers of the sea. And when the lifeguards are only operating from nine till four, most of the drownings are after four. Correct. And there's no awareness. So we started this uh, educational program. We thought we'd have like 30 kids and 10 volunteers. We had 160 kids. And 60 adults, and it was because of COVID that nobody right. was traveling abroad and people were happy to be outside. And uh, so this is a, another nonprofit. And now we're going to be working in Jisra Zarka, which is uh, Arab uh, and, and Haredi to learn. So interesting. Skills. Very, so interesting. And, and last week we were up at the Knesset uh, speaking about it. And it looks like that we are going to have a, a national educational program is the government participating in any of this? Well, the new government now yeah. is interested. And in the Knesset committee meeting, funny enough, the chairman of the committee was a Bedouin. And he understands that Bedouins drowned. And right. there was Haredi also a member of Knesset. And he understands. So they're getting together and we're now creating a task force. Yeah, because what interests me there is that you know, from the philanthropic perspective, one thing that that we always talk about, especially about philanthropy in Israel, is that in many cases, the collaboration with the government offers a possibility for scale. Yes. Right. You have a program and then the government can help you scale it up. The exit strategy for many of these programs is that the government takes it over and, and helps you, you know, Correct. expand it. It's sort of as if the philanthropist in this case take the risk, so do the initial pilot project, and then the government brings it to scale, so to speak. The, the government sees the benefits right. and they give the funding to the municipalities that sit in the field to create yeah. the scale. Which, yeah. is, which is a great model that we don't have so much in the United States. I mean, Israel, it seems to be easier to, to do these kind of arrangements uh, with the government and, and the like. Let's say you you wave you can wave a magic wand and uh, imagine this coalition moving forward. You know what would you want it to be in say five years time? Five years that's a good number. Five years, yeah. <laughs> hamsa, hamsa, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, five, the open hand of karate. Exactly. <laughs> well said. So um, you, you heard of the uh, MEPA fund, the Alliance of Middle East Peace? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, why I'm bringing this up is because, you know, for more than 10 years, the Alliance of Middle East Peace have been trying to get the Congress to... Uh, the U.S. Congress, I mean. Sorry, the U.S. Congress, yes. Right. 
to give uh, money to these grassroots organizations. Sorry, it's it's all map. It's not map, all right? It's all map. So all map yeah. is the organization, and I'm right. a board member of all map. For for those that don't know, all map is an organization. It's a very it's a great organization. What it does is it helps works with the Congress bringing support to through USAID, through the uh, American Foreign Aid and other foreign aids to organizations that they vet, that they're not political, that they're kosher in that sense, and work a lot with US Congress to do that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's completely bipartisan. Actually, it worked under Democratic and Republican presidents, even under Trump. It, it's a really good conduit for foreign aid to these kind of initiatives. Yes. So when you talk about the scaling up with government funding, that's one thing. But another access to scaling up is through foreign aids. And, you know, the idea is uh, to get $200 million a year, not $50 million a year. And right. $50 million they want from the US, $50 from Europe, $50 from Arab countries, which is significant, and $50 right. from philanthropy. Yes. The idea of this $200 million is to be able to help these grassroots organizations to scale up. And the model comes from Ireland, and that's what happened many years ago. The Americans and the Europeans were giving hundreds of millions of dollars to grassroots organizations, particularly the women organizations. Mm -hmm. They were able to scale up to change situation. This fund, which came into being with the blessing of J Street, and APEC, and you wouldn't believe it, Trump signed it a week before he left office. So it's yeah. a $250 million fund, $50 million a year for five years. So right. we talk about five years' time, and I see part of this funding, as well as uh, philanthropists, they can join the funding of these grassroots organizations that have been for years desperately looking for funds to scale up to create uh, social change in Israel and across border. As you know, these podcasts, episodes that we do are um, recorded, and especially now during the pandemic, you know, we publish them several weeks, sometimes a few months after we record them. And that gives us a great opportunity to go back to some of our interviewees and tell them what happened since. And in the case of Danny, I wanted to talk to you, Danny, again, because I've been uh, following some of the things we discuss, especially in the field of sports for peace. And a lot of things actually happened since we spoke, didn't they? Yeah, a lot have. Uh, in particular, um, this coalition that we are... Uh... So when we first uh, spoke, it was in August, and now we're in December, and a lot has happened in terms of the process of building trust and thinking more out of the box than just upscaling activities. Right. And I guess that also with the progress of the Abraham Accords, that must have given you a, a very friendly environment to do this, right? Well, uh, you know, uh, United Arab Emirates and, and Bahrain, they love sport. And, yeah. and uh, really, it's, uh, it's, it's quite inspiring to see what they're doing in the world circuit of sport. And here we are using sport for social change. Uh, we're now in contact with them. But we're really focused on Israel and right. how we can um, really use sport as a tool to change things. 
but you you kind of changed your strategy in a way because you went from funding Buddha for Peace as sort of the main focus, and now you're moving to creating a coalition that scales up the sector. So so how was that change? What what brought you to the change? Well, I realized that there are so many sports for peace and sports for social change organizations, and they're all working in isolation. Right. They're all trying to do the same thing. So we should share knowledge, we should share resources. And, uh, you know, three years ago, I did a pilot where we brought 10 organizations and 13 different sports together in Ramla and had an event together. And then since this year in Ramla and Lod, where all the violence happened, you know, it's a different scene now where there's much more of a need to use right. sports for bringing people together. And how do you bring people to work together in a coalition? Because like I have that dilemma also, like a JFN, we, we try to encourage people to work together, to co-invest, to build coalitions. And, and it's not easy, <laughs> you know, like people have their egos, they have the things that they love. How do you get past that? Well, yeah, building trust is key. And being a philanthropist, but also from the field, you know, I have an added advantage in a way where right. I can bring in the funding community as well, as well as, you know, the MEPA fund, which we talked about before. However, yeah, it's not that easy. And what we did in the coalition, we decided not to have only um, sports for peace organizations where the mandate was just peace. We opened it up to those that had sports for uh, kids at risk, sports for special needs. So they weren't really competing and we have also small organizations and large organizations. Uh, in, from August, or from when we actually started with 10 organizations, we realized that we were all Jewish Ashkenazi organizations. <laughs> Ashkenormative, as they call it. Ashkenormative, right. And we needed to have Arabs uh, in organizations led by Arab managers or inspired by Arabs that wanted to be part of this process. And it's taken... Uh, me quite a lot of time. I've been running around the country trying to find Arab organizations who want to be part. And now we have found uh, organizations. And now actually we're talking with um, Kudra. Oh, okay. Um, a wonderful organization that are just getting off the ground that also want to be. By, by the way, for those of you that, that don't know, Kudra is a Arab funders network that Jeff and help create. Uh, and we had a podcast episode with Avrim Yunis, the, the, one of the leaders of Kudra. So you can learn all about it. So just today I was speaking with Ahmed Muhammad from uh, the CEO of Kudra. Right. And he gave me some statistics which blew me away, which I thought was wonderful, because if we want to make impact, these statistics are really important. And he said that only 8% of the Arabs community volunteer. Wow. The Jewish are 20%, and because there's no real structure for them to volunteer outside their village. And the other thing he said was 40% of Arab youth are either unemployed or doing nothing between 18 and 24 years old. So that is a huge problem. And when we uh, started to uh, invite these other Arab organizations, and there was one in particular, I want to tell you this story because it still uh, surprises me. It was one organization called Hoops piece you know basketball hoops yeah and uh he started a few years ago a very young and inspiring uh, arab uh, man that was a nurse he gave up being a nurse decided he wants to do an ngo because he loves basketball and he created that and his uh, team junior girls uh, won the junior championship and then COVID happened and he had to 
disband. But just before that, uh, the U.S. Embassy paid for him to go to Seattle to learn sports management. He went there for three weeks and came back. So I went to his town. It's called Kabul, which is not in Afghanistan, but it's in the north, in the Galilee. And uh, I asked him to join. He said, but my organization is very small. You know, you have the big guys, the Paris centers and all this. And I yeah. said, but we need to have Arab input. It's really important. And I said to him, you know, what would you, if you could dream uh, something for your organization, what would you want? And he said to me, he said, look, I have 100 girls that play basketball, but I have 200 girls who are volunteers. And he would love for them to have an opportunity to volunteer in another sports for peace organization, in a Jewish sports for peace organization. And I asked him why. And he said, because they can really learn to speak Hebrew. He said for him, that is the most important thing for those girls because of social mobility. They'll get right. the chance to get to university. They'll get the chance to do work. And um, and that's something that a Jewish sports for peace organization wouldn't have thought of. And that's what I call a system level change. So before we were talking about how to upscale, you know, get funding for just increasing and expanding the organizations and but doing the same thing. Here right. we're talking about system level change. And, and I'm sure there'll be other things that are gonna come out. So we started talking about a gap year for these right. girls, you know, a shirut to me or just a gap year. And this can be organized. So you imagine that. Right. And if the civil society does it and not the state, it doesn't have the political load that sometimes makes it complicated in the in the Arab sector. Right. Like the programs before to encourage people to do shirut Lumi, to do national service. Right. if not the army, they never picked up because of the political factor. But now if it's the civil society doing it, maybe it works better. I think so. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. You know, with the um, the coalition, yeah. it's not just civil society. At the moment, we are building this civil society for sports organizations, but it also includes the sector of philanthropy, the right. sector of government. And the sector of business. So that's why, you know, we're, we're slowly doing it. But, you know, the building the trust is really uh, paramount. It's kind of interesting uh, that in your journey as a funder, you went from funding a specific initiative to work towards strengthening the field as a whole. Talk to me a little bit about that journey, that transformation. Okay, well... And as you know, I my specialty was karate, and uh, <laughs> and I and you learned a word in Japanese, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, my sport was I thought the best for impact because it's right. not like a team sport, but it's you know you have to look at the person in the eye, you have to touch them, you have to trust them, and for me, I thought that was great. But then after I met other sports organizations yeah. and. You know, with different, with similar values, and I think it all made sense that we should be talking to each other and sharing knowledge and sharing um, evaluation techniques and models. And but it's it's very hard to do that if nobody pushes it. And right. and that's the point. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be the backbone of this uh, coalition and and fund the backbone. And later on, uh, we will get other funders and we'll get the government. But it needs that push. And um, I really see that it's important and no one, you know, government won't do it. Government is not equipped to do it, but but the, the concept you're talking about, the backbone organization is, is very important. Like that's something we find out 
that in every coalition, it's very important to have somebody who serves as the backbone. And you can interpret backbone in many ways. It sometimes is one organization that takes upon itself the management, but sometimes is is a funder who says, I'm going to start this and I'm going to be the linchpin of that coalition for a while until it, it stands on its own feet, right? Like you're, you're sort of taking that role, hoping that in the future, maybe that role will be spread among others, right? Yeah. And, and we're also um, in contact with other sports for social change coalitions, like in the UK, they're 400 members. And wow. uh, in the US, yeah, no, it's uh, it's really quite a field. And uh, and it's great that we can learn from them. And they're very excited to hear that something is happening in Israel. And it's kind of interesting because from, from a funder's perspective, um, you know, funding one program, you can achieve some results, but becoming the backbone of a field-wide effort, your impact can become much broader and much more systemic, right? Like you, you, you're going to reach many, many more people than if you just stayed with Buddha for Peace alone. For sure. I mean, just with the 11 organizations that are now leading this coalition, they have 25,000 kids. We're in 384 locations. And then when we dive deeper into the data, we find out that just between these organizations, there are 80,000 alumni and over 700 volunteers now. So what do you do with them? How, you know, how can you use that? Yeah, now the return on investment is really a- It's humongous. What is next for the coalition then? Well, we haven't had that many face-to-face meetings. You and six billion other people, but yeah. yeah. No, we had the, the first one at uh, Shitufim. You know, Shitufim have been helping us also. And they're mm-hmm. a great organization. Um, but we're going to have every month now, and it's quite a commitment. We're now demanding commitment that once a month for three hours that we meet, and every second week we have a Zoom, and we have to create a common agenda, which we haven't done yet. And we plan to have by April 6th, International Day of Peace and Sport was when we first started it, to have a common agenda and also bring in the other sectors like government and uh, philanthropy and business. You know, Nike and Adidas in Israel, the last few months have been doing amazing campaigns using Arabs and Haredi uh, role models. So I'm pretty sure that we can also get uh, corporate involved in this coalition. So there's quite a lot to do. And our first target is is April 6th. So we've got three months to get there. And then we'll have a common agenda. Part of the wisdom of building a coalition and, and one of the main psychological challenges is to relinquish control. Like, so when you say, I can't tell you, you're saying it with a smile, but it's really one of the hardest parts of running a coalition that you, you really can't control it. And, you know, and that's, and you need to be open to see what, what emerges from the people, right? From the first face-to-face meeting we had, we already have amazing ideas, you know, like promoting employment, um, you know, dealing with the lack of manpower in sport in the Arab society, sharing volunteers between organizations. This just is coming out from the coalition. And it's great. It's from them. It's not from me. Right. And, um, and, you pro- and they touch different parts of the field, each of them. So obviously you got to get different input from them. Oh, absolutely. You know, one, one uh, outcome for the participants is promoting awareness to the importance of physical activity. And from there, 
you know, we can talk about later on a work group of how to decrease obesity or um, diabetes. And this can come from this one idea. And, and, and that's what they do in England. They have all these different work groups coming from the ideas and bringing in different coalition members who want to work on those fields. You know, jumping in my head, what you said about the Arab sector, 40% of the youth are doing basically nothing. And uh, I couldn't help but connecting that with the level of violence in the Arab community, which is which is a national emergency now. And, um, and, and these 40% of kids, you know, youth, could be at least doing sports. And that would be a way of probably moderating that, you know, for starters. You know, like there's something to, at the very least, something to occupy them. And at most, something to teach them leadership and personal skills and and, and responsibility. Yeah, and, and let out their frustration. Yeah. Correct. Like, what's what's best than playing a rugby match when you feel, you know, when you feel frustrated, you're going to let it out in the field. You know, hit the ball really hard. When I look at the the mapping of the organization that we have, um, you know, I talked about twenty five thousand, but most of them are between seven and eighteen years old. Right. So what happens after that? You know, and it's the 18 to 24 year olds that are lost. The Jews go into the army and then the rest are lost. So this, you know, this is an opportunity to teach them to be coaches and to be mentors and role models and really thinking how we can make a, a gap here as a, as a system level change for this sector. Right. So we talked about the coalition, we talked about sports for social change, and we talked about what's next for all these initiatives. Now, what is next for Danny? <laughs> well, I really want this to get off the ground so it becomes institutionalized. It's not right. a Danny Hacking project. And I, that's really why I think it should be... Uh, a coalition rather than Danny Hakim philanthropy support uh, project. And that way I can take a step back and the coalition will be running by itself with the help of government and other philanthropists. That's really what um, I'm, I'm doing this. And I'm also doing, I mentioned the uh, surf life saving program. And we're actually going to be opening up in Jisra very soon. So I found an Arab woman that teaches surfing from Jisra And she has access to hundreds of kids. And she's going to be teaching them uh, life-saving skills and going to be part of our federation. It's amazing. Anything that gives you hope as you look at emerging from the pandemic, hopefully, and a new world with the Abraham Accords in the Middle East, worrying signs from Afghanistan and from Iran. So what, in this context, what gives you hope? Well, I, I think we have to be quick <laughs> yeah. uh, and we've got to do it properly, is, uh, is scaling up the trust building between right. Jews and Arabs and Haredi. And it's very important. And you saw what happened in May and you know what happened in the, you know, in the past governments. Things have not been equal and trust building is paramount because the, the country was falling apart uh, without activities. If it's music or if it's art or if it's sport, it, having this common platform of bringing kids together. And we can't wait for the leaders to bring the peace. And even if they do bring the peace, you still need to have the trust building from the ground up. And this is what we're doing, is building the field. That's amazing. That gives me hope.
thank you, Danny. That was really interesting. And I wish you all the best in this endeavor. And of course, Jeff and was happy to be part of the beginning of the coalition. You know, my role has transformed from being in the field that we're now the backbone. It's very important to have a backbone for orchestrating the work of the coalition because otherwise right. just talk. 100%. So how do you say thank you in Japanese? Arigato gozaimasu. Arigato gozaimasu. Thanks so much for Danny Hakim. You can learn more about Budo for Peace at budoforpeace.org and about Sport for Social Change Coalition in the downloadable PDF on this podcast page. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Spokoini. So I leave you with a quote that I think is anonymous but it's a really good one. It says, giving is not about making a donation. Giving is about making a difference. So keep making a difference, keep giving, and see you next time at What Gives. What Gives.